Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. What do you do if the person you love turns out to hold the seeds of your own destruction? My guest this week has lived through that and discovered the answer to that question the hard way. Writer and broadcaster Liz Fraser was a divorced mother of three in her 40s when she met and fell in love with Mike. They moved in together, she became pregnant, and when they had a daughter, they decided to move to Venice. So far, so idyllic. But Mike was an alcoholic, and Liz's life was about to descend into a hell we all think is reserved for other people. I excused so much stuff or rationalised it or explained it by he's injured himself. That's why he's kind of black and grumpy and drinking a bit more. It's stressful at work. These were all things I was told as well. So, In her astonishingly visceral memoir, Liz writes about love, addiction, mental health and recovery with rage and clarity to create an unlook-away-fromable story of, well, I want to say pain and healing, but I have to be honest and say it is mainly pain. But she also writes about love, the love that brought them together, the love that kept them that way through unimaginable trauma, the love that against all odds still exists. I know if you've ever been in a situation remotely like this, you'll find what Liz has to say immensely helpful. Warning, this conversation includes discussion of alcoholism, addiction, emotional abuse, violence, mental health issues, self-harming, eating disorders, trauma and PTSD. If you have been affected by any of the issues we discuss, I'll put some useful information and links in the show notes. So before we talk about the bad, because we will, um, let's talk about the good. How you met Mike, Well, where it all began. Yeah. So Mike, I mean, to put this in context, has been my partner for the last six years. And we met a couple of years before we got together, actually. He was a barista in the cafe in Cambridge, where I used to go every morning, as you do to your regular place. Hi, morning, skinny cappuccino. Yeah, cheers. You're right. I am right. Okay, cool. That's it. And we got to know each other, as you do. It was a little nice little group of us, actually, who used to desk hop. And uh, yeah, a few years after that, then his marriage was over, my marriage was over, and and we we got together. And it's about as simple as that, really. And we're together for six years. I think I'm slightly in the vortex of having finished your book. You describe being in a relationship with an alcoholic as like living in a tumble dryer Mm. reading the book is a bit like it's almost not the tumble dryer because that's a bit too gentle (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a tumble drive falling out of an aeroplane in, in a volcanic eruption. More like a washing machine where you suddenly go into a 1200 spin cycle. I slightly feel like that still. It's incredible. It's an incredible book. And it was hard to write. It was very hard to write. My editor, actually, her response on reading the first draft, was, she said she needed a few days to, to kind of yeah. recover. And I thought, what really because the thing I forget is that I've lived through all of this so to me it's as natural as breathing I mean this is what I've been living with all the time so I'm completely accustomed to stories of or scenes of gaslighting domestic abuse physical violence trauma self-harm crying you know people passing out on the street drunk and so I forget that someone who comes to this fresh will go whoa what? And also, it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, the public face was, hey, here we are, oh my God, everything's lovely, and here's our baby, and hey, we've moved to Venice, this is nice. Because nobody knew that behind the scenes of the glittering palazzi and the Grand Canal and the spritz on the seafront, you know, was daily crying and fear and just awful, awful things going on. Not not all the time, I have to say, not all the time, but pretty quickly and pretty intensely. Mm. Everything was fine to begin with yeah. several times you say about people asking you when did it start when did you realize Mike was an alcoholic and that's such you know a dumb question <laughs> in a way so I don't want to ask that question I suppose when did the wheel start to come off I think it's not a dumb question and in terms of actually where to start I'd like to start by just saying why did I write this book I mean why on earth write this down mm-hmm. because really that's the crux of the whole thing it's because I found myself in a situation that I could never, ever have even imagined happens to anybody, let alone me. And as it all got worse and worse and worse, and then when we ended up being apart because we couldn't be together and, and he was just so unwell with his alcoholism, I started to talk to people because I was on my own at that point and I was so lonely and I was I just didn't know what had happened to you know, this love of my life, this relationship I was so utterly devoted to had at that time, yet again, come to an end because of his illness. And I started to talk with people. Every time I said to somebody, oh, you know, my partner's an alcoholic. And, oh, my dad was. Oh, my ex-partner was. Oh, my wife was. Some people had, you know, dead ex-partners because they had died of this disease. And I thought, thank God. I didn't know this was going on everywhere, all around me. With people, I would never have thought it to meet them. People Mm. who look like you and me and not like people you might imagine are living in a situation with an alcoholic because we don't talk enough in really ordinary, everyday terms. And then when my partner went into sobriety, finally, after about six months in sobriety, he, he had this kind of beautiful awakening and kindness and gentleness. And he said, Liz, you have to write a book about this because what you went through, I can see it now. I can see what I did to you. I can see now the trauma in you, the damage it's caused you. And you had nowhere to go and you had nobody to talk to. I think you really should write a book about this because it would help a lot of people. And that was about a year and a half ago now. So I did. I was thinking of writing something. It was in lockdown. It was in that early lockdown that we had in sort of April or so of 2020, wasn't it? He came back from an AA meeting and I don't know what it was. And he just said, you have to write this book. I want you to write this book, he said, because it will help so many people. So that's why the book is there. And then to come back to, you know, the question, you know, when did it first start? How didn't you know? The book starts by just setting out some context. How did you not know this man was an alcoholic? 
you knew him for a couple of years before you got together. You knew that he occasionally disappeared for a little while. He wasn't at work and you knew that he went off drinking because you'd heard the stories or you saw him drunk in town or whatever. And then when you moved in with him, you knew that he drank every day or he went through these great periods of drying out um, <laughs> and not drinking for a month, which is, I, I thought was, was nice. Didn't strike me as odd. I'd never met anybody in my life who dries out for two months. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us don't do this, apart from dry January, right? I didn't know because do you know what, Sam? Maybe I'm just from a very sheltered, lovely background where people are not alcoholics in my family, but I had never knowingly known an alcoholic. I didn't know you could be an alcoholic and look like this guy. Young, fit, you know, bright, on it, good job, nice house. You know, I... I didn't know. I didn't know what the disease was. I didn't know how it manifests or can manifest itself. I didn't know about functioning alcoholics, you know. And But that's kind of the way things are set up, isn't it? It's like you're being kind of led to believe it. These things don't happen to people like you. Yeah. It's like the same with domestic violence and yeah. coercive relationships and drug addiction and any sort of addiction. It's like, oh, it's not people like you. It's them over there. And then we don't have to deal with it. If you can other it successfully, yeah. you don't need to ever deal deal with that nasty thing over there it's exactly that phrase i'm writing an article at the moment for the newspaper and i, I wrote these things don't happen to people like me do they mm. and and they do well actually i mean i denied it for so long i was in total denial i excused so much stuff or rationalized it or explained it by he's injured himself that's why he's kind of black and grumpy and drinking a bit more it's stressful at work and these are all things i was told as well so oh it's shit at work you know people are off sick it's an absolute nightmare it was often health anxiety which is true you know he had a lot of health anxiety which used to drive him really into places of such i mean fear and an overwhelming fear of something being in him that was a cancer or something and his drink was often to alleviate that fear but it really was low level at that time there was no kicking in there's no moment where someone becomes a fully fledged alcoholic mm. um it rose noticeably in the year in which I was pregnant. And then after I had the baby, that was a very, very difficult year. There were a lot of bad patches in that year. And we moved. <laughs> we moved to Venice, right? And I have to say this because it is mm -hmm. a very important part of the book. I was very sick with my morning sickness, right? I, I vomited every single day, every day from about four weeks until the day she was born, every day. So I was really sick with this pregnancy. This is my fourth pregnancy. I was 42 and um, I took Mike to Venice for his birthday when I was about three months pregnant, I think. We just sat there and went, this is incredible, actually. And hang on a minute, we don't need to live in Cambridge. You're a freelance photographer. I'm a freelance writer. Mike was so happy there. His parents used to go there. And as a photographer, he used to say the light, you know, the light's amazing. Mm. And I love being by the sea. I grew up by the sea or he wants to go back to the sea and we talked about it very seriously we worked it all out we found that there was work there there was really good opportunities for us there me as a writer him as a photographer we went let's just do it like the baby will be just little so after she was born yeah we moved to Venice when she was eight months 10 months old and things absolutely nosedived and what do I mean by nosedived so in the summer before there were increasing episodes of pass out drunk so Increasingly coming home late from work, late from work, late from work. Anger, volatility, combative kind of, well, what the fuck do you want me to do about this? It's my fucking job. Like, whoa, okay. More and more and more mm. of that. Taking on ever more work, always more work, longer hours, you know, leaving earlier, coming back later. 
I was not prioritized and the baby was not prioritized. Everything else was prioritized. And none of this money was coming home. You know, where was the money? It was this restlessness. And as I say, that the volatility and the anger, I didn't know it then. The gaslighting, the manipulation, the you're making it up. For Christ's sake, I told you that already. I told you I was going to be late. You're driving me mad. You're making it a nightmare to be around you. All this kind of stuff. I'm at home with the baby, right? <laughs> and trying to work at the same time and planning the trip to Venice. So it was a real bumpy, bumpy start into that fourth motherhood. And I've done it three times before. So it's not as if I was a new mom. It was great. I had, I had three experiences of being a new mother. I could very objectively say, this is shit. And he went back to work full time when she was seven days old. Seven days old. And it was November beginning of December. And I said, sorry, what? This was not what we discussed at all. Mm. Oh, sorry, I forgot to ask about paternity leave. All right, I'm fucking sorry. So the point with it is not to badmouth this person. This is very important. It's that it's a trait of unsettledness within an addict that you need to kind of move and move and move and keep moving towards this thing that you don't know what it is because actually you're just trying to get away from wherever you are and whatever you're doing. And that year was absolutely blistering for me and then we moved to Venice and then I said in the book Venice is a floating pub if anyone mm-hmm. listening to this has been there right you know you have the best time because it's beautiful like it's off-scale beautiful and what's everybody doing drinking spritz una birra vino apro spritz Sempre, sempre. And that's what you do when you're on holiday because you're there for three yeah. days. When you live there and you happen to be an alcoholic and you've just moved country and you've left your friends and your job and your routine and all the things that an addict or someone with any kind of mental health issues needs, now you're completely fucked because you've lost all your structure. And what I didn't know for a while is that Mike was drinking every day. And within, I don't know, within a month of being there, we were just arguing. I was alone. I was alone so much. We moved in October and this was in November. Mm. I was crying and crying and crying. Like, why are you so down, so angry? So what is happening? We're supposed to be having this wonderful time. And he was ill, yeah? Mm. He was really unwell. So this is not a nasty person. This is an ill person in a place that now just doesn't give him any of the support network that he kind of just had to hold on to. So it's hard. It was very hard. From where we're sat now, the memoir is really clear-eyed. You know, you absolutely go there with total clarity. And then when you're in the midst of that, you don't know he's ill. Do you know, I still didn't think he was an alcoholic. No, I didn't. Because it hadn't progressed to the place. I wrote a bit in the book about yet, the yet game. Mm, He hadn't done this yet. He hasn't actually passed out in the street yet. He hasn't physically attacked me yet. He hasn't left yet. He hasn't gone to hospital yet. And so it was still just adjustment to Venice. You know, it's difficult, it's dark. Oh God, we had to renovate the flipping flat. So the whole point we went there to the place where we lived was there was no work pleaded doing. It was all done. Well, within four days of getting there, ah, <laughs> we get this caller. Ciao, Lisa. So there is a little problem. Okay, what's the problem? There's a wall missing in your flat. 
what? No, there isn't. Yeah, yeah, because something hadn't been done that was supposed to be done. And we had to smash the flat to pieces, move out in the winter and renovate, rebuild the whole bathroom and kitchen in a foreign language, in a foreign country. Oh, and in a city with no roads. Everything's on water and trolleys. <laughs> I've yeah. got a man who's drinking himself into the lagoon, an 11 month old baby. It's pitch dark. It, it was really awful. It just got worse and worse from that. But I still didn't think he was an alcoholic. I thought it was circumstantial. I thought it was because everything mm. was a nightmare. So what do I do? Because I'm a mother. I'm an empath. I'm a homemaker. You know, I'm somebody who supports and loves people and cares for people and gives themselves. I keep giving and giving. You know, he told me one night, you know why I'm so down and depressed. You know, it's financial worries. I've got my O2 bill and my website bill and you have the money. You could solve this for me. I gave him two grand just like that to take that pressure off him, to help mm. him. I just disappeared into a debt that I didn't know was there. I found that out a long mm. time afterwards. I tried to introduce him to people who would bring him work. I tried in every opportunity to give him time, go to the gym or go for a walk every afternoon. He'd go for his photography walks. It's very important, you know, while he was drinking. <laughs> um, mm. He had no income. I had a little bit of income and I had savings. So I just kept shelling out money thousands I mean thousands of pounds over those years and when it got worse and worse it was smashed mobile phones and lost bus tickets and train tickets here and there and I mean just money more money more money for I don't know what and why because you keep thinking if you could just get some help some therapy if you could stop drinking you would actually be the person I met you'd be fine you'd be happy again and we would be happy again and we had this beautiful little family. We were such a lovely little family. Our daughter is absolutely gorgeous. Her look, her energy. And I just wanted her to be so happy. I just wanted us to be together as a family and to give her everything that we had the opportunity to give her. And I kept fighting for that. And there will be people listening to this, I'm sure, who will go, yeah, I just kept fighting for this thing. Mm. I kept believing in this thing. If he or she could just stop drinking and get some therapy, it's only the drink. It's only the drink, you know. Of course, it's not the case at all. It is partly the drink, but it's not only the drink that's the problem. It's like you said just now, it's like, not yet, if yeah. only, if you could just. Yeah. All those like little things that... You want it to be, it feels like it's just ever so slightly out of reach and it's only a baby step to making it better, but that baby step's really a cavern. And that's, that is the thing that eventually you have to get to grips with and really adhere to. It is out of your control. You have to detach, detach, because you will never, never solve this. It is absolutely for the addict, the alcoholic, or the person with a mental health problem, whatever it is, they have to solve it. And what happens to those of us who live with it is that we get destroyed by it in our constant attempts to sort of fix it or keep things together. And, you know, you can have limitless compassion for somebody. And I had absolutely limitless compassion for this person and love for this person. Yeah, there was real physical assault. If someone says to you, I want to stab you to death, I want to smash the teeth through the back of your skull, that's maybe the time that you leave, <laughs> you know? But I didn't. I could see him in there, like, behind this monstrous thing. And I stayed, you know. There are two times in the book when I was really happy. I look back on this now and go, oh, Liz, oh, dear, oh, Liz. One was when we were apart and I was in Scandinavia traveling with my daughter because I had nowhere else to live and a friend said, come stay. And the other was when I was on my own, <laughs> when I moved back to Oxford on my own. Yes, you're a scientist. Quite a good correlation there between <laughs> not being yeah. an abusive addict and, you know, being happy.
you know, you were in your early 40s, you were very successful woman, you're a writer, broadcaster, as you say, scientist, you've brought up three children very successfully, you know, got a fourth. Surely there's a slight sense, isn't there, don't you think, amongst women? I don't want to say all women, but a lot of women of our age and type and generation to go, this is within my power to fix. It's a very, very important point. Yes, because if you can't fix it, if you failed in some way, I thought that I had to just keep trying. I thought that if I can't keep helping and can't keep supporting this person, have I... um, have I abandoned them? You know, was there more that I could have done? It's such a wrong psychology. It is absolutely a self-destructive psychology that you see this is the thing you know women in our 40s here we are so we all grew up in the 70s basically didn't we and there was very little education so where I grew up here you know I had no education at all in self-awareness in boundaries in oh god no god no I mean just zero and I think there is a generation of women now in their 40s and 50s probably even 30s I think it's really the 20 year olds who are much better at all this my eldest is 23 and my middle is 21. And they're light years ahead of me. Even now, in my late 40s, they know far more about self-kindness and self-preservation and boundaries. I didn't at all. And I do wonder if there are a lot of women, particularly of our age, who were so brought up to be the carer, the good girl, get everything right, and, you know, make sure, you know, and who were not educated to stand up and go, this, not okay, all right? You get out because you're treating me appallingly. And you're seen as aggressive. Oh, she's a bit male, isn't she? She's a bit testosterone She's a bit controlling. You're controlling if you do that. Yeah, you're a control freak. No, I'm actually standing up for myself because this is horrific. And I couldn't do that. And there was massive codependency in that relationship, as there is in a lot of relationships with addicts. And I need to do a lot more work on myself. It's a real ongoing process. And my recovery is absolutely nowhere yet. It's only really just sort of starting from now and from actually, I'd say in the last six months or so. But I need to understand far more about why I was so codependent, why my attachment issues are so great, Mm -hmm. and why I couldn't detach what was I so frightened of to make sure it doesn't happen again. I've just been sat here like a nodding dog the whole time you've been talking, because I think that whole going right back to when you're tiny, that whole good girl thing has such a lot to answer for. It's not not okay. It's strange how prevalent that still is. And I feel often talking or reading on social media, just what I pick up there and talking to women of my generation. I think there is a lot of confusion, actually. What are we supposed to be? Are we supposed to be the loving, nurturing carer? Are we supposed to be the superwoman housewife? And we do. How many of us still, we have the job, we earn the money, we pay the bills, and we do the childcare, and we do the drop-offs? Absolutely not in all cases, but we do. We shoulder so much of it. But if we don't, are we just unkind or selfish or something? There's There's a real conflict where there should be no conflict at all is when somebody says they want to stab you to death. There should be no conflict. (laughs) (laughs) Right. At that point, you should know I am out of here, whether you're ill or not, darling, whether you're drunk or not. I don't care. This is dangerous for me. And I did shut the door and I shut the door on him once and once only, which was in which he sort of, yeah, there was a bit of physical violence at that point. And I thought, okay, you need to go out of my flat and you're not coming in. But even then I said, you're not coming back until you're sober and calm. 
even that's me not saying we're done. That's me yeah. saying, go away, get a glass of water, get some fresh air and some coffee and come back when you can be calm and civil. Yeah, that scene was um, very toned down, shall we say. <laughs> there are aspects that were, were left out of the book because they're potentially so damaging to somebody that I took them out. But I mention it because I don't want to sugarcoat anything and I don't want people to think it doesn't get that bad. It really does get that bad or it can. Did you take that stuff out for him? For you, for your children, because you didn't need it there once you'd got it out. Why did you? Oh, I mean, it really was absolutely for the protection of him and, and me and, and our daughter and our family. You know, there, there are certain things you actually don't need to put in print. And I know they happened. He knows they happened. Or I don't know if he does, actually, because he was so drunk for much of it. Sometimes he says, Liz, I actually have no recollection of that at all. And that this is important because they have blackouts. These are blackouts while being awake. So entire conversations that happen. And five minutes later, he has no recollection of even being in that place. So mm. it never becomes very difficult. Okay, because now this person's going to deny this ever happened. It literally didn't happen. Yes, it did. I can assure you that it did. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And um, I actually started recording a lot of it. I have a lot of video. I have a lot of audio still now because it was so maddening that this person would deny, flat out deny having said these things. So then it's like, look, it's right here. Look at you. You are looking at me saying this to me. You, you end up doing things that you just, you would never do that. Why would you record somebody? You mm -hmm. know, because this is the only evidence I have to show you. This is what you do to me because you're manipulating me. Then it's all, oh, you're making it up. You're crazy. You're absolutely batshit. You need to go and see, you need some medical help. You're really not okay. So as happens to a lot of people, I started self-harming. I stopped eating. 
my PTSD is just because you're on constant high alert. Your hypervigilance is such that your nervous system, it's like a pneumatic drill all the time. Beep from the phone, crash of a door, bang of a gate, you know, smack of a hand on a table, shouting. Whoa. So you become, I mean, if a microwave pinged, I would scream. And he'd be like, you're not okay. You're, you're just, you're nuts. You're making stuff up. You're, so, yeah, you end up questioning your own sanity. You end up having no self-confidence at all. And also, it was a particular situation for us, actually, because a lot of this happened when we were not at home, we, as in we were not near friends, we were not near family. Mm-hmm. I was very isolated. So I had nobody to confide in. I had nobody to talk to. All of my information was coming from the person who was doing this to me. So I was just in this bubble of what he was saying to me until we went our separate ways for a while. And that breath, people started approaching me actually through social media. I remember this. It was suddenly very clear that it was me and my daughter, me and my daughter here, me and my daughter in Sweden, me and my daughter in Cambridge. Where's, where's he? And a few people said, Hey Liz, nice to see your pictures. Just are you, is everything okay? You're all right. You seem to be on your own quite a lot, and you look really, really tired. <laughs> Actually, well, between you and me, yeah, things have gone a bit, and I'm on my own. And that's when the help started coming in. And then you get these external voices saying, "Liz, this is not okay. You are not mad. Look what you're doing. You're earning money. You're paying the bills. You're looking after your daughter 24 hours a day, seven days a week, on your own with no help." You are not insane. That's a very capable, coping, responsible, reliable woman. You're being told nobody likes you. You're a dreadful human. You're being told this stuff. And God, it is hard to close that noise down and start to turn your volume up again and go, no, I've got this. I'm actually completely fine. Thank you very much. But it's shattering, absolutely debilitating when you live in a situation like that. There were times he was actually gaslighting you and times when he truly wasn't because he, he didn't remember. And how you tell the difference between those things, I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. And I want to say something, you know, which is really, really important at, at this point. Again, this is not about... Um, you know, trying to badmouth anybody at all. This book, I have said repeatedly to him, this book is a love letter. This book is a love letter. Oh God, I'm going to cry. You know, from someone who just loved somebody so much, Sam. Oh my God. I just love this man so much. And so if I say bad things about what he did to me, it's because they happened to me and they happened to a lot of people and we need to talk about these things. But it doesn't mean this person is bad. It means this person just completely lost their ability to control anything they were doing. And it's that, you know. So did he, did he, was he even aware of gaslighting me? No, I don't think so. He didn't mean to be manipulating me. I, don't, I didn't even know the word gaslighting until it had been happening to me for a couple of years. I don't, I don't know if he did either. So it's very easy to sit here now and go, oh, he did this to me and he did that to me and he said this to me. Mm. He was nowhere, he absolutely nowhere. And it has continued into sobriety. You know, the sobriety chapter or section of this book is really shocking, I think. I think almost more shocking than the drunk thing. Because if someone is so ravaged by alcoholism, depression, anxiety, poisoned by alcohol, that they've actually lost all their senses, all their, what am I looking for? Well, whatever, you know, their mind, effectively. 
that any of that can continue in sobriety when you're not drinking, that really shocked me, that these are things which take years and years to undo, to change your entire thinking pattern, your responses, your behaviours, your triggers, everything. And um, going into sobriety was not at all the solution. It wasn't the answer. It was just the next headache. But good that there was no alcohol involved. You know, very, very good. When you reached a point where you realised that he really, truly was committed to sobriety, was there something in you that thought we're at the end now of this as opposed to actually at the beginning no I really thought this is it now it's going to be fine it's going to be maybe difficult for I don't know give it three three months or so even that felt like a long time no I thought this is going to be it he'd be sober and it would be like a cloud lifting it would just be oh hello look there you are see there you are Mm -hmm. that's the guy I've been hanging on for all this time I knew you were in there all the time and now we can be happy and like I said in the early months of the lockdown he had a big mood relapse at about three months a really big one there was smashing of furniture real like he just seemed to just for want of a better phrase freak out completely it was as if I've done three months that's good that's great but I actually can't cope with this I can't go for life I need to relapse now but he couldn't and didn't I think I don't know I'll never know I'll never know if he's not drinking today I mean I just don't know but it was very shocking short and sharp but then after that yeah, there was this lovely time and I was I was happy. I thought, yeah, we've made it. And he had a job. It was very perfect. Actually, He was a postman at the time. He got a job as a postie. And um, it was perfect because they carried on all the way through lockdown. I think if he'd had to stay at home, as happened to a lot of people, and mm. their drinking went up a lot. There were so many problems, weren't there, with alcohol and drugs and stuff in yeah. lockdown. I really believed we were okay. But I shall tell you, my dear friends, <laughs> that's yeah. not how it goes. And... Um, Addiction doesn't just go away in six months. It does not work like that. It's for life. For life. It's for life. And it takes therapy and work, work, work on their part and your part. It's my washing machine beeping in the background. Yeah, I've been been listening to it. It's like spinning. (laughs) Can you hear the spinning as well? Oh, no. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Real life life going on here. You know what? I really like it. I really like that. (laughs) Recording at home and... Kids and dogs and washing yeah. machines, to a point, obviously. Yes, <laughs> okay. to a point. Yeah. I kind of, enough about him. There's <laughs> <laughs> a little line in the book that made me really well up when you said you were homesick from yourself. Yeah, you aren't yourself. You don't exist anymore. If you are in a relationship where the relationship is just you giving and giving and giving to somebody, caring and supporting, you just don't exist anymore. I was not even a shell of myself. I was just empty. Loneliness is a massive, massive part of living with somebody who has an addiction because their whole everything is absorbed by this thing, is completely dominated by this thing. So it's not that they have no time for you. That's not true. You have to understand that you are very much the secondary part of this person's existence. I love being on my own. I'm never lonely when I'm on my own. I'm very happy in my own company. They're not the same thing. It's not the same thing. The greatest loneliness I've ever felt is almost being in the same room as somebody who is ravaged by addiction because you're right there. You're right in front of me. I used to say this, like I'm here. Hello. I'm right 
here. Where are you? You, you know, I'm just tired, all right? Fucking, I'm just tired. You've been tired for two months. Like, you know, I'm here. And it's, um, it's a really, really tough existence. And unless you make a decision to start being nice to yourself and just, you know what, I'm going to put you aside. You go and do whatever it is that you need to do. Because I exist too. And I'm going to go and see friends or I'm going to, you know, start a hobby or I don't know what. But it's easy to say that if you're not mm. in the position. And if you're in that position and you're just so tired by it all, you actually kind of want to crawl into a hole and die. And I got really extremely depressed, very down. I did feel suicidal at times. I really did. I felt utterly, utterly hopeless. I didn't want anything else. I just wanted us and our family. Then that was used against me in kind of, oh, you know, you're just so miserable and you're not very well, are you really? You know, you need to go and get some help. And again, all this stuff. I just want you to be my rock now. I've been your rock for years. Could you could you come and help me? Could you maybe step up and help me? And there's this whole bit in the book about that, that you can't expect that or it's false hope. It's completely dirty hope. If you think they're going to be able to come and help you, you are so wrong and you need to go and get that from somewhere else. That might be a recovery program like Al-Anon or therapy or going to see friends, which of course in lockdown you couldn't do. So there was no Mm. social network. It was the worst time for this to happen. I will say until I am in the grave, that the reason our relationship was so difficult after he got into sobriety was because it happened during lockdown. We couldn't do anything, you know, like everybody. We couldn't go to the Mm -hmm. cinema. We couldn't see friends. We couldn't do anything. We were locked in this house with somebody going through something massive and somebody else living with this. And we couldn't have any fun and we couldn't relax. And I think it contributed a lot to sort of how things went from there. You have a history of eating disorders, as many women do. I did, but not for so long. There had been 15 years since that was last a problem. And you can identify the two periods of my life when that's Mm. happened. One, when I was sort of age 17 and, and right the way through my 20s. And one again, just recently, you know, in this, it's when I was unhappy, I felt empty and unhappy. When I'm happy, I'm absolutely fine. And now it's just not an issue at all. It's not an issue at all. It's what happens to me when I'm extremely distressed, I think, I suppose, which is why it's a problem. It means it's my coping mechanism. So it came absolutely out of the blue. And it came just after I had the baby around about that time. I just lost so much weight after I had her and he was so absent and I was so alone and so sad. I felt unloved and abandoned, exhausted, desperate, actually. And I just lost weight. And was it, you know, as it is in your teenage years, a means of kind of clutching at control? Yeah, probably. It's so hard to to unpick sort of why these things really happen. It takes years and years of, you know, psychoanalysis, I guess. But certainly it did feel like it was the one thing that I had, that I kind of had some control over, which of course is (laughs) the great irony because you have no control over it at all. If you had control over it, you'd stop doing it. And also I am absolutely able to say it was a cry for help. It was a very visible cry for help. Look at me. Hello, look at me. I'm a skeleton. I'm so unhappy that I can't eat. Come and put your arms around me. Come and Give me warmth and comfort. Come and love me. And how are you now? Well, as you know, and people are now gradually starting to know, we are no longer together. So about six weeks before publication and after what I think 
I would put as about three or four months of the same patterns, the same restlessness, the same withdrawal in him. And I got lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. And it was the summer, so there was no nursery. I was on my own with my daughter all day, every day. And then in the evenings, I couldn't really do anything because I was knackered. It just built and it built. And the arguments started and the arguments got worse. And he just said, I'm done and left and walked out. And that's the end of that. (laughs) So I'm on my own now with my little one. And it is extremely sad. It's a relief also. Well, I mean, I fell apart for four to five days. Like, of course. Absolutely. It came from, for me, nowhere it blindsided me like a 10-ton truck had just smashed into me honestly I fell asleep I was one of those women I was screaming I just lay I was screaming Sam I lay on the floor I was just like no 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 but let's focus on the positive right I no longer have to live with the lies and the fear and the always, when's it going to happen again? What's going to happen? Why is that? That sounds weird. This isn't true. That's all gone. I do what I want now and I am in control of what I'm doing, my daily life. I'm looking after my daughter. Currently, it's been every single day since he moved out. It's funny. His sobriety is no longer my issue. It's nothing to do with me anymore. It's like just this, (sighs) what you do is what you do. I no longer need to think, where are you? That's weird. You said you were going there, but now you're, oh, what? That's kind of weird. And why Why do you have no money this month? Because you're supposed, okay, so where's the money gone? These are no longer my concerns. And it brings an enormous calm. I'm lonely. Yes, I have moments where I think I would take you back in a flash because I miss certain aspects of this person very, very much. Of course I do. And then those have to be quite quickly dampened. I'm going to be 47 next week. I look okay. I think maybe one day there might be somebody out there for me, certainly not looking to get into any relationship for quite a long time. I want to spend some time with myself, with my daughter, mending, healing. And you know, I have to say this about the book. If this split had happened before I finished the book, I'm not sure if I could have written the book quite so compassionately. I'm on picking a lot of things now. This is not sour grapes and it's not looking back and going, oh, you know, actually it was this, it was that. The book is absolutely true to what I felt all the way through when that was happening. And I'm really glad that I've got that book, hardcover to hardcover. Inside there is a story of what happened to me and happens to lots of people in different ways, but there are a lot of similarities. And it ends, the last paragraph is basically one day at a time. Come back to me in a month we could be getting married we might have split up I just can barely even say that out loud because that was my insurance line and what happened he left um and I hope he'll be all right you know I hope he'll be all right it's not on me anymore it's me and my children my priority yeah I had underlined that and I think you say I'm at the end of all that and the start of whatever comes next. Maybe I knew, I don't know. The thing is, when you live with an addict, you are in a constant state of uncertainty and you never know. When you hear all the relapse, relapse stories, it just happens at one o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon after nine years of sobriety. Just walked into Tesco's, bought a bottle of vodka and that was me. That was me off the wagon for a year, two, four, you know. What? Well, what prompted that? don't know, just kind of happened, just felt a bit unsettled in myself. What? So I no longer have to live with that anymore. But yeah, of course, a part of me must have known. If you just look at the patterns, it was every three months, then every six months. It was just a repeat, a repeat, a repeat. So in a way, I'm very grateful. I'm Ty. I'm very grateful that he did what I couldn't do. He did what 
actually probably needed to happen, maybe not for life, but it sure as heck needed to happen for quite a long time. He needs to take the time he's never had to really figure out who he is. This is I'm, I'm quoting him, by the way. I'm not putting words right. in his mouth at all. That's what he said. He just, I've never had that time to actually figure out who I am. Addiction is one of those things where you fill the hole in you. They call it the hole in the soul. You fill it with the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until you've actually identified what that hole is and filled it with yourself properly. You're never going to be able to sort of see things through and, and be happy. It's going to take me ages, ages to get over this, like a really long time. But I try not to dwell on that. And I just try to go, this is a good time, right? Here I am in my house. I live in Oxford where I've always wanted to be. I've got three older children, two at university. One's graduated. My youngest one is just beyond adorable. I have a book coming out. I hope it's going to help a lot of people. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. And I'm eating so well, Sam. Like I've put on nearly all the weight that I lost. It's only been five weeks. I don't even think about it. And doesn't that tell me something? I'm smiling. I'm smiling. I haven't smiled for years. And so many people have written to me to go, Liz, I know you. There you are. Look, that's you. Mm -hmm. Look at the pictures of me during that time. Oh my God, I just look so sad. (laughs) Yeah. And it's that irony, isn't it? That Instagram irony that you were painting a picture or thought you were painting a picture of a perfect Venice life. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I'm asked about that. Well, you know, why did you do that? But that was true also. You know, you don't fake the pictures because this is a lovely moment. And it's Instagram. You know, you're going to post a picture of the nice sunset, right? Because it's Instagram and it's pretty. That's my little play space, isn't it? So that was all true. It's just that I didn't show the pictures of me with a massive bite in the middle of my head where someone had bitten my head. That's not that's not what you put out there. But I have those photographs. <laughs> and I know that it happened. And, and I hope that in telling my story of what happened to me, someone who just walked into this beautiful relationship and it went so badly and I had no idea what to do. I hope that if someone reads this book and goes, shit, that's exactly what's happening to me. Okay, maybe I need to talk to someone, make sure that I get the help that this person didn't get. Maybe I need to um, sort of listen to this and go, okay, I need to do something to help myself. That'd be a great thing to put in the world. I'd be happy with that. I think so many people will thank you for it. Whether or not they're in the same situation, whether they've ever been in even a slightly similar situation. That's what they say in um, in recovery. You don't look for the differences, you look for the similarities. If you look for the differences, you'll always say, oh, well, we weren't living in Venice, were we? Oh, we didn't have yeah. you know, You'll excuse, look for the similarities and they are right there. There will be five things in that book or whatever that so many people will go, that, oh my God, he did that. Oh my God, she said that. Yes, that, exactly mm-hmm. that. And those are the things, the red flags, the pattern patterns those are the things that affect so many people and then yeah what you end up doing about that is up to you but I wish I'd got a lot more support and I wish I'd understood it more and yeah it's weird isn't it in the end I didn't leave I was still there (laughs) I was still going (laughs) (laughs) well you've given a huge amount of support to other people so I think you can take a lot of comfort from that yeah I hope so I'll always be glad of that that was the right thing to do I think Um, It feels a bit weird to ask you the questions I always ask because some of them are really flippant. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be flippant. We've done heavy. Let's have five minutes flippants at the end. What's your emotional age? Right now about 95. (laughs) I thought you might say that. (laughs) I don't know. I think I got stuck probably around about 25. I feel very young. I do. Why 25, do you think? It was a good time, I think. Um, My children were then, you know, sort of zero, three and five around about that stage. Life was lovely. It was really good. I was writing my first book. 
my marriage was lovely. Everything was good. Can you recommend a book, either one that's been really significant or just something that you've read recently that you really rated? If I read, it tends to be non-fic. I always have Eat, Pray, Love wherever I live. That's also really embarrassing, but I always have Eat, Pray, Love. A lot of photography books and cycling books. I'm obsessed with cycling books, but I don't go cycling anywhere. Okay. <laughs> I buy books about epic cycling journeys through the Alps and the Pyrenees and go, yes, I'm going to do this. Oh, do you know what? We could talk all day, I think. It's just like... Other life that I want to inhabit, but instead I just yeah. sit here making packed lunches for my three-year-old. Oh, what advice would you give younger women? Don't be scared to put yourself first sometimes, and to look after yourself. And that doesn't mean you're selfish. It doesn't mean you're arrogant. Don't be scared to just be who you actually are. Just really be who you are, and that doesn't mean you have to trample on people. But be true to who you are. Great. Who would be your old bird role model? <laughs> There's a list of them. It's the Meryl Streeps and the Julianne Moores and the, you know, women I just think have grown so elegant and who are so intelligent and seem so kind of good, you know, just good people who've raised their families and, again, kind of are true to who they are, I suppose. Women who age gracefully and kindly. My mum, actually, is a great role model, I think, for me in a lot of ways. My mum's an amazing woman and she's 74, I think, now. But you see her bombing through town on her racing bike like you'd think she was 45. <laughs> she's just, she's phenomenal. What's your superpower? Resilience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a cockroach. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think absolutely just coping, coping and resilience. And lastly, how many fucks do you give? Too many, a lot. I do. I'm not that person yet who goes, I don't give a fuck. I really do. I think maybe, isn't it just a question of what you give a fuck about? Exactly. Yeah. What yeah. do I give a fuck about? My kids, really, that's it. <laughs> my children. <laughs> Everything I do is effectively for my children. You have to look after yourself in order to look after them. That's the bit I got wrong. And that's the bit mm -hmm. I really, really tripped up on when I was living with an active alcoholic. I give a great big fuck about looking after myself so that I can <laughs> look after my children and my friends. That's really brilliant. Thank you so much for being so honest, Liz. Thank you. Really Thank you. excellent. I hope I haven't said loads of things I shouldn't have said. <laughs> <laughs> if you write a tell-all memoir, I mean, you know, you... <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.